2: from emergency transport to, from Icy to the city to Sinai. Attention all listeners on this frequency, stand by for an important announcement.
0: Welcome to Medic to Medic podcast, the weekly podcast for EMS providers, EMS leaders, EMS medical directors, and others involved in, or those who have an interest in emergency medical services. Ladies and gentlemen, here's your host, Steve Cohen.
1: Coming from the Cary Area EMS Medic to Medic podcast studios, it's another episode of Medic to Medic. Today, I am joined by Remley Crow. who began her career in EMS as a volunteer, EMT, and instructor with the Mexican Red Cross in Mexico City. She completed her EMS Research Fellowship at the National Registry of EMTs, earning her PhD in public health from the Ohio State University. I'm also joined by Brent Myers. Dr. Myers is an internationally recognized expert in the areas of EMS system design, performance, improvement, and population management. He also was the system medical director, as well as the EMS medical director for the Wake County EMS system, which I am a part of. Brent is also a second-time guest on the podcast. So Remley and Brent, welcome to the Medic Podcast.
3: Great. Thanks. It's great to be here.
1: Well, I asked them to come because they both work for ESO. Brent is the chief medical officer. And, Remley, what is your title?
2: I am a research scientist and performance improvement manager.
1: And one of the reasons why I did ask them to come on is because for the last two years, they have looked at a whole bunch of, I guess, PCRs and grabbed some data. So we want to talk a little bit about that and what the purposes uh, of that data and what they're looking to do. But first, let's uh, talk about uh, both of them. So, Remley, let's start with you. How did you get involved in EMS?
2: So, it's been a little bit of a windy road for me. I was actually studying abroad. I did my undergraduate in business administration, and I went to Mexico City, got in a car accident, thought, hey, this ambulance thing's really cool. Maybe I'll do that. So, I graduated and moved back to Mexico City, where I enrolled in EMT school.
1: Wow. And can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to be an EMT in Mexico City?
2: So, on a good night, for 26 million people, we had six ambulances out. Wow. And I'll say, one of the things here, <laughs> yes, wow indeed, one of the things here is that, you know, you open the back of an ambulance and it's fully stocked. In Mexico City, that's not the case. I had whatever was in my backpack.
1: Can you talk about what you had in your backpack?
2: Oh, yeah. So, whatever I could scrounge up at EMS conferences, I would usually have a couple roller bandages, some normal saline, a couple of other things. And... Um, as far as the actual equipment on the ambulance, I can say that I have shocked somebody with a cardio life 4. I've also used that hard suitcase Lairdol suction unit. So the museum of EMS comes to life.
1: Wow, you definitely have uh, uh, some pretty cool experiences. And Brent, how about yeah. your starting EMS?
3: So I was 16. My uh, father was a banker. My mother is a business statistician. Uh, there's nobody in medicine in either side of the family. Uh, and I wanted to buy a car. And dad said, well, you've got to get a job to buy a car. Uh, You know, he'll help me pay for it, but I need to learn the value of a dollar. And the hospital at that time had a Baylor plan, which for those of you that don't know, that's, you work two 12-hour shifts on the weekend, you get paid for 40. So as a high school kid, um, the only job they had available was a orderly in the emergency department. So I started my career in medicine, changing bedpans, changing sheets, enrolling patients to get their x-rays done. Um, from seven a to seven p on Saturdays and Sundays, and uh, the charge nurse there uh, realized that the sixteen year old was not really thrilled with the aforementioned activities, uh, and pulled me out onto the uh, uh, ambulance bay and said, "Look, if you'll work here for a month, you will want to be doing this business the rest of your life." And so, what I tell people is, if I'd gone to be a work with a plumber at that time, that was that enthusiastic thirty years into their career, I may well have been a plumber, right? I mean, they, the the enthusiasm that she put forward, and then she hooked me up with the EMS agency, who then told me to go to EMT school, and that's how it all started. And then, how did you get
1: involved in becoming the Wake County EMS Medical Director?
3: Uh, Same kind of thing. Uh, I was doing my EMS fellowship in Chapel Hill, and half of that rotation was with Orange County EMS in Chapel Hill, and half of that was with Wake County EMS in Raleigh by design. Um, And as it turned out, Dr. Vaughn, who was the medical director here at the time, had been looking to retire apparently for a couple of years and just was waiting to see who might take his spot. And when I came in and was there as a fellow, uh, we started a conversation. And you know, I was ready to move anywhere in the country to be a medical director at a big EMS system. And uh, it just happened that the one I was doing my fellowship was the one that was available. So that's that's where it started.
1: And Remily, how did you get involved in research?
2: So I had an idea that I wanted to help grow the EMS evidence base, and I actually had enrolled in medical school in Mexico City, and I was set to start that August. But on my vacation, I went to an EMS conference, and I ended up attending a research luncheon and found out about the opportunity at the National Registry of EMTs to pursue a PhD through their EMS Research Fellowship, so I decided I would compete for that, and I ended up winning it and spent the last five years in Columbus studying my PhD.
1: And I know that you did a lot of investigations on safety of the EMS workforce. Can you talk a little bit about that research and what what did you find?
2: Right. So I have worked on a couple of projects regarding both safety and wellness. And so one of the big projects on safety that I'm proud of is we did a survey on patient safety based on the AHRQ surveys for the unique environment of EMS. And so we ended up finding a bunch of different domains that can be used at your EMS
3: agency to evaluate safety.
1: So what are you doing now, Dr. Myers, uh, as the chief medical officer of ESO?
3: So it's really a a three part job. Uh, one part of it that is probably more than a third of the time, uh, is meeting with current or potential customers, particularly those that use the HDE, which is the, the interchange between EMS and the hospitals. While this is in some communities has been going on for many years, uh, For most communities, this is a less than 12 to 18-month-old experience to have EMS where they can actually see all of the outcomes for all of their patients. Hospital chief medical officers, hospital HIPAA compliance officers still need a a conversation. uh, And generally, it it works better when it's chief medical officer, chief medical officer. So I'll fly to those hospitals or those communities and have conversations to help move those data uh, forward making people very comfortable that clearly this is well within the domain of HIPAA. But again, it's just a, it's a different use case. And so I think it just takes um, some explanation for folks. So I spent some time doing that. Um, I spent another third of the time probably um, doing research and presentation. So uh, rimley and I are constantly working with um, Scott Bourne and Tony Fernandez, who's also part of our group, um, to look at the data that we have and see what questions can reasonably be answered And then either conduct the research ourselves or facilitate uh, that research from external researchers. Uh, And then, of course, presenting what we find at national conferences and other places to help kind of spread the word. And then the rest of my time is spent with the product folks bringing back what we're hearing from all these other visits and conferences to say, hey, this would be even better if we could push this as a discrete data element into the hospital. One that, that interestingly comes to mind is hospitals now have to report the total amount of fluid that a sepsis patient receives within the first three hours. Well, they want the EMS fluids to count, but you can't just say, well, it was about a liter. You have to have the exact number, obviously. Uh, And so just getting the engineers to say, hey, you know, it used to be you could just put EMS fluid and nobody really cared. Now they need to know the exact amount and then we go in and redesign the the software so that we can get better patient outcomes. So that's Kind of the span of the work.
1: Either one of you, can you tell us a little bit about ESO? How they came about?
3: Yeah, I'll be happy to. Um, so the CEO of ESO um, is uh, Chris Dilley, and he was the uh, performance improvement slash quality manager for Austin Travis County EMS when Ed Rock was the medical director there. Um, and what he found is that he could not easily produced the data that either he or Dr. Rock wanted from the way they were gathering the data at the time, which was mostly paper-based. And so he found a programmer that he knew that was a friend of his, and they started putting the software together to say, make it easy for the medics in the field to get the data in, but make sure that it's data that can come out and be useful. Uh, Fast forward, that was 14 years ago. Um, Fast forward uh, to now, uh, we are the largest... uh, EMS, fire, and hospital data company in the United States, uh, 14,000 clients, um, about 2,500 of which are medium to large size EMS systems, um, and then there's a smattering of fire departments that start with a, a single you know, engine volunteer fire department all the way up to Chicago and Detroit and Washington, D.C., so there, there's kind of everything in between. Um, we manage uh, a what we call the ESO data sphere, which is the, the fun part of the job to me, people that are that use our software can opt in to say we are willing to share our data in a de-identified way for research and benchmarking, which will which will lead to what we're going to talk about in just a little bit. And the beauty of that is we have seven and a half million records annually um, that go into that data sphere that we can use and for purposes of, of research and benchmarking which is fantastic. I'm also happy to report that the HDE piece, the outcomes piece, is getting better and better literally every month. Um, we anticipate, and we of course we don't know till we get in 2019, but we'll have well over a million of those records will also have the outcome from the hospital uh, during this, this cycle. So we think that there's really some great research opportunities before us and, and we've already kind of dipped our toe in to managing dispatch to discharge in the same database and looked at some questions around stroke, some questions um, that I think will be helpful for triaging those patients and so forth. And we're kind of in the early stages, but we're, we're confident that there's going to be some answers.
1: Remley, what attracted you to go work for ESO?
3: So my start with ESO, my introduction to ESO was about five years
2: ago at a Texas EMS conference. And uh, I had just given a research presentation, and somebody approached me after the talk and was like, hey, you're into research. You like data, right? I was like, yes. And he's like, come with me. My brother has data. Okay. And he dragged me over to the ESO booth where I met Alan Johnson, who is uh, the VP of um, EHR and all things healthcare. So That was my first introduction, is, oh, well, these folks are interested in data and using data to improve EMS, which is definitely in line with my personal mission. So after finishing up the EMS fellowship at the National Registry, I was looking for a job, and this opportunity became available to let me combine both research and quality improvement. So I'm very excited to be able to do that here.
1: I'm going to put you on the spot real quickly, and you do not have to answer this if you don't want to, but what were your first impressions of Brent?
2: My first impressions of Brent. <laughs> oh, let's see. Well, that's actually a funny story as well, because I'm originally from Wake County, so I had always heard about Brent and known of him, and actually tried to meet him a couple times at other conferences, thought I was going to go back and work at Wake County eventually, but how the tables have
1: shifted, and I did end up working with Brent, just ended up at ESO instead. That's a good small way. Small world. It is a small world. All right, so let's get into why I want you to have on the podcast is... How did this project come about? You kind of alluded to it a little bit with all the data gathering and, and the sphere of information that's coming into ESO. Who's branch out and how did it get started and was there some stumbling blocks and how did you get uh, you know, your CEO on board and everything else?
3: So I'll start with the, how it came to be and then Rimley has done just a tremendous job of refining these metrics because we're now in the third kind of iteration of, of putting these metrics out so um, the initial piece um, our uh, director um, of corporate communications and, and one of our great marketing uh, guys is by the name of Andy Prince and he does not come from the medical industry he just comes from the marketing industry writ large and he came in the door and we were basically having the conversation we just had about what we have and all this great research we're doing, and, and he said, that's great, and that's helpful for clinicians, and it tells a story to a certain segment of, of folks. But people really understand the concept of an index. Like, this is the benchmark for this thing, and that's a different audience perhaps, but it's certainly a different way of telling the story. And I've got to say, I was skeptical uh, because I wasn't sure exactly exactly how this would help an industry or exactly what we would do with it. And so we spent probably three or four months kind of in some pretty serious conversations about, are we going to do this at all? And if we do, what are we going to put in there? And so what we came to are things that met certain criteria. Number one, any agency could do it. So it can't be something that only rural agencies do or only urban agencies do. It's got to be a metric that any that provides EMS in the United States could look at that and say, hey, I could do that piece. Um, And we wanted things that were relatively non-controversial. So we didn't want to talk about, um, you know, are you giving blood to trauma patients yet, right? I mean, I think, quite frankly, that's going to become more clear over time as well. But um, we wanted something that was pretty well established. So we picked these first five around that notion. And um, we learned uh, pretty quickly uh, from great feedback from people that received the index to say, hey, I've noticed this problem. Let's see if we can measure it this other way. So we, the, the reason we kind of put out the mid-year one last year is we learned so much from people giving us feedback to say, I would tweak that just a little bit. I would measure it just a little bit differently. And, and so it, it got its first refinement, and then Rimley comes along um, and takes over the, the data integrity and research piece of this and really dives into it. And so this last index uh, that just came out that looks back at 2018 as a full year, uh, I think is, is far and away the, the best of the three, and we'll, we'll continue to refine it over time. But that's, that was kind of the concept is let's put something out there that if people attain it, there's not a lot of debate that it actually helps. Uh, and it's doable regardless of the size of your agency. So that, that's where it started. Remley,
2: Yes, I think Brent hit a lot of the high points here, and so what this is intended to be is really a conversation starter. I think a lot of efforts are moving towards quality improvement in EMS, but sometimes, you know, programs are just getting started up. They don't necessarily have all of the resources in the world, and it can be really difficult to find a place to start. So this index offers, you know, five core measures of something that's relatively easy to measure, easy to collect the data in a consistent manner, and is a way to just get your program off the ground just by looking at these and figuring out one area to improve.
1: Well how hard was it to pick these five
3: metrics? Rimley, I'll, I'll start with that and then we can we'll get into the, particularly the ones that we refined in 2019, but the the notion was it and Rimley has a great slide that she uses in many of her presentations that you've not only does it have to be something that we agree on and something that can be measured, it has to be something that happens with enough frequency in a system that you actually can measure it within a year or within six months. It's not something that's going to take, you know, four years to find. Um, you know, and, and in many systems, things like, you know, a, a, a pediatric intubation, while it's an important quality metric, it's not doesn't lend itself to an index because it's a relatively rare experience. So we started with something that we think was completely non-controversial, which is: should you put an entitled CO two on if you did an advanced airway? And you know the the paper from Katz from Orlando now is probably fifteen or twenty years old, where they showed that if you don't have entitled CO two on, you can have up to a seventeen percent missed airway rate. If you have entitled CO two and you pay attention to what it says, you will have a zero percent missed airway rate, right? So it's <clears throat> it's a big safety um, factor for patients. We were happy to see that we're at the 95 96% range, and it stayed very consistent there. But this gives a really neat notion of how we've started looking at what are we going to do next. Um, because right now, it's dichotomous. In other words, if there is an entitled CO2 recorded in the chart, you get credit for it, and that's why we get 95%, 96%. When we released the, the data for 2019, which would be early in 2020, we're going to look back and say, well, how, what was that value? And are you recording values of four or three? And do you get really get credit for those? Um, or do you record at least two values? Because the notion that you only looked once is probably, while great, is probably not enough. So that's an example of how we're going to take a metric that I think is very important and then r- refine it to help. Um, and you can imagine that if you're an agency that has 95% compliance with one value, but seventy percent compliance with two—that's a real easy target for performance improvement, and and probably is clinically meaningful as well. So um, that's kind of how that one uh, came to be, um, and I, I, we're, we're actually looking forward to some some positiveness with that for sure. Um, the the other two around chest pain and stroke are, are going to be really uh, more controversial over time, I think. Um, the the one that was most surprising to me was the aspirin one, and we'll, we'll we can dive into that. But the just to give some background, and then you know, Ramley, we can talk about the um, the actual metric that we found. But that was a originally a hospital quality metric that came from CMS Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services that basically told the hospitals. You have a year to get compliant with this, and then if you're not, we're going to start docking some money from you, basically. And that metric only stayed in the, the bundle for just a very few years because the hospitals hit 100% compliance. And so CMS said, well, there's no reason to measure this anymore. Um, we then measured it for EMS, and it is in the 50s. Um and if you think about, you know, our hospital brethren got to 100% really quickly, and we're stuck in the mid-50s, that, that's really a place I think we can we can talk about some performance improvement um, around that. So, really, I don't know if you have any reflections on the, the hospital aspirin or the EKG one. We'll, we'll, we'll do those two and then kind of move along.
2: Yeah, I think the aspirin one is really interesting because, yes, we saw the low rate of documentation, but there's another issue whereby providers like to document that in the narrative section rather than in the discrete medication administered field. And so that complicates things for research and quality improvement purposes. We can't see the narratives readily and you can't search for every spelling of aspirin or ASA or however people decide to document that. And So I think that just brings to light the importance of documentation, particularly when these measures can be used in things like RFPs when county RFPs go out and things like that. It becomes more and more important, not only that things are being documented, but they're being documented in discrete fields.
3: Yeah. That's a great point, Remley. And and for this one and for stroke, we were and the stroke one is basically if you, if you have an impression of stroke, did you document a complete stroke scale? But that's really the, the, the metric piece for that one. And, That one was also in the 50s. I mean, and we'll talk about that one got a little bit, actually, quite a bit better, uh, relatively, in a short period of time. But what we found when we dug into the charts and actually started reading them is even when you document, let's say the stroke, you document the stroke exam in the narrative. And people say, well, I've done my job, it's in the narrative. Well, there's a couple of things there, but the most common of which is when I read those, Almost all of them omitted the time of onset of symptoms when they were documented in the narrative. If you go to a, the stroke screen where you're you're kind of prompted to put stuff in, you won't forget that because it's right in front of you, and it's and it's a prompt. And you know there are people that that look back at this and say, well, that's dumbing medicine down, or that you know, and, and that's not really the case. the 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 point here is let's get it right, and there's nothing wrong with having a little assistance to get it right. Um, you know, uh, the when we looked at that and just put that out there, um, the stroke performance improved from, from the 17 data that we published in 18 to the 18 data we just published from 50% to 65%. And that was really encouraging uh, to see that if you just show this and show its importance, things can improve. The interesting part is aspirin didn't do that. Uh, aspirin stayed flatter, if anything, trended slightly less in 18 over 17. Um, and there's a narrative piece of that, as, as Rimley described, but there's also about a third of those charts where it was missed. Uh, there's no mention of aspirin anywhere. Um, and there's a lot of potential hypotheses around that, right? One of which is somehow it's, it's just kind of old news and people are forgetting to do it, Perhaps, you know, our dispatch is getting better and, and patients are taking their aspirin as directed via dispatch, and they're telling somebody, but it's just not making it into the documentation. That's certainly a possibility. But regardless, we are going to be judged, and, and our folks at Medicare and Medicaid have made it very clear that they are going to be judging us on quality, not just response. And this is a low-hanging fruit metric, and we've got to make sure that it gets counted. And it what I've told folks over the past year at conferences is you want to get credit for the work that you do. Uh, And so you got to figure out a way to, to, to just put some prompt. And so we're, we're thinking about closed call rules and things like that, that we don't want to, we don't want to encourage people to, you know, pencil whip or over document something that may or may not have actually happened. And, And surely we don't want to do that, but we also want to give people that are trying to do the right thing an opportunity to get
1: rid of what. What are your thoughts about that, Remley?
3: I agree. I think it's um,
2: a big challenge to train to change this mentality from you know, maybe documenting in the narrative to documenting in the discrete fields. but I think the way that we're going to be able to affect that change is communicating the why we're doing this. And this is really an important quality measure measure for clinical performance. so I think that making that shift you know is going to be a challenge, but it's a challenge worth pursuing.
1: Now, I think you you did mention earlier in the podcast uh, there's no HIPAA violations or everything's protected when you go read these charts because you're reading how many charts are you reading?
3: Well, so we the the index itself is run off of that data sphere that we talked about where people have voluntarily agreed to put in de-identified data, and because it's de-identified, then we're we're clear of all that. And and, and as I said, the, the agencies have voluntarily uh, the data in. Uh, we process data. We help with it. We don't own the data, right? The agencies own the data. So this is a voluntary thing. Um, part of that is we do a random chart read, uh, and that falls under the minimum necessary for quality, right under the HIPAA. Uh, so those are you know half a percent, one percent are pulled at random, and they are de-identified before they're reviewed, right? So I mean, there's there is a a process by which we can pull those without any identifiable information and then read the narratives. And that's, that's what we're talking about here. Um, so, uh, you know, for, for these, it was four or 500 charts each that were just pulled at random. But after reading about 150, we knew what this, it, there were no surprises after that, right? They, they all fell into these buckets that we, we had seen. So, you know, for aspirin, it was clearly in the narrative um, and, and not somewhere else. Uh, there was some of it that, um, you know, there was just no reference to it whatsoever. Uh, and those were the ones where you thought, you know, what's going on? And then there was another group of them where it looked like people had just picked the first chest pain diagnosis they could find, which renders cardiac chest pain, even though when you read it, it was obvious. It was a motor vehicle crash with chest pain, it was fever of 104 and pneumonia. Uh, but they had chosen that, and again, when CMS looks at the metric, if you don't pick, you know, t- traumatic chest pain or pneumonia as the primary, it's going to be in the bucket, right? So uh, I think there's some just some basic uh, refresher around how quality is measured at the national level, and what you pick on that diagnostic group actually matters, um, or your primary impression is.
1: Better. So when we pull down that pick list on here, so there is actually a reason behind those uh, the list. <laughs> there, is
3: is a bit, there is a very important reason, and that list now pairs over to the hospital list. So there's a really nice opportunity to look at matching or mismatching between paramedic primary impression and the hospital impression.
1: Remley, I just want to make sure I'm clear about the, the aspirin since we spent uh, some time talking about it. So if you read it in the narrative, you can't count that as part of the metric. Is that correct?
2: That's correct challenging to automatically count anything that isn't a free text field, whereas if you document it in the actual medication discrete box, we can easily query that with all of our tools.
1: And I'm just curious, uh, with the PCRs that you're reading, with the aspirin administration, are they getting it by the fire department and, like you said, the patient's taking it when the 911 telecommunicator tells them taking take an aspirin and it's just not getting documented somewhere? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Exactly, and so that is something you know that involves a little bit of education and training around that there is a place to document that it's in the medications field. But all you do is document prior to arrival, and now taking that extra step obviously involves a little extra work. But communicating why that's important, you know, probably will drive some change.
1: You've been doing that in your third well, the second article, but you're in your third year of, of pulling these metrics. The biggest difference between the first one and the second one. Have you found that the aspirin is still staying about the same? Was one that surprised you?
3: Um, so the, the improvement from stroke was nice. Uh, that went from 50 to about 65%. Um, I was also very happy to see that the entitled co 2 metric remained constant uh, in the high 90s. Uh, so there was not a fluke or a one-time thing. I think the industry has really embraced this notion that you know a dislodged airway is... A, a, you know, a catastrophe for a patient and really with the tools that we have today just shouldn't happen um, or if it happens to be immediately recognized. Um, and so that's, I think, fantastic. Uh, to, to move on to one that we kind of added um, for the, the last run, we started looking at the association between the medic's impression of infection, influenza, and the national trend from the CDC in 2018, 2017 into 2018. And as you may remember, this past year was relatively mild compared to the year before. Um, And so there was a real significant uptick in late 17, early 18. And then, you know, February, March of 18, there was quite a bit of flu around the country. Um, And we were able to look back and realize that the paramedic impressions also spiked in a similar manner about eight to twelve days before the CDC spike, which makes sense because the CDC's numbers come from either confirmed laboratory diagnosis or hospital discharge. And if a patient's sick enough with the flu to be transported by ambulance, they're probably going to spend a few days in the hospital. Um, and so we're we're monitoring that now on a forward basis, and we've at least got it graphically represented in the latest index um, and. There's a lot of practical application of that. Um, you know, some systems have a, at their dispatch have extra questions once the flu season has hit, or they change practice in the back of the ambulance for those for whatever reason that may not have had their flu vaccine, then they need to be wearing a mask all the time. Or there's a, there are very practical things that would be very helpful to, this, to the country to say, we're seeing an EMS, now is the time to do whatever your flu measures are. We're not going to prescribe what those are, but now is the time. Um, and we're, we were pleased this year that we never got to the place that we did in the previous season and our numbers held true to that. So we didn't have a false alarm to say, oh, it's coming and it really didn't. I mean, there was flu clearly, but it was nothing compared to last year. And I our data backed that up. So we're going to be refining that over this year as well to see if there are other things, other clinical entities that lend themselves to that kind of, um, uh, measure, and, and as I'm sure Rimlow will echo, we don't want to measure something for the sake of measuring it. So, if there's nothing to do about it, then we're probably not going to measure it. But, for the in the case of flu, there are concrete steps that most communities take, including their EMS systems and dispatch, once they know the season's upon.
1: We can just talk about the measles crisis, what the, the- towns and cities are doing regarding, you know, you can't come to school, you can't come to work if you've not been vaccinated. So, yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, that's I, it's somewhat of a comparison, I guess. Yeah,
3: yeah. same thing. It, it, it's actionable information right. as opposed to, you know, um, you know, here's something for you to know about. there's something you actually do something with.
1: ramley do you have a favorite one or one that surprised you?
2: I don't know if there's one that surprised me, but I do think that the 12-lead performance for adults with chest pain leads us in the direction of not only investigating this, but digging further into the measure. So obviously the goal behind measuring this one is, you know, looking for STEMI, but that opens up the whole box into atypical STEMI and looking at other patient presentations. So we're actually going to have a spin-off series over the summer for Quality Improvement Summer School and look at some of those atypical presentations and see if the 12-lead performance is as high, higher, or lower. And then with regards to the, the flu, I think that the flu measure as well as our opioid measure are really cool and important because it shows that EMS data has a role in public health surveillance. So as Brent measured, these are actionable pieces of information, but they previously haven't really gotten noticed in the public health sphere. And this is a you know, a first look at, does EMS data tell us something? Does it provide a more complete picture? And I think the answer to that is yes.
1: What did the opioid uh, crisis metric show uh, when you guys did your review?
2: Traditionally, we looked at just uh, opioid overdose as a percent of all EMS calls, and that really has stayed pretty consistent. So we are at about 1.7% of all calls are, had naloxone administered and are presumed opioid overdose. And I think that this in particular is important because in the CDC measures and the Wonder database, we're often talking about deaths from opioid overdose, but with wider availability of naloxone, we're seeing fewer deaths, but the burden of the opioid epidemic really involves looking at both deaths and administration of naloxone. So this provides a little bit more of a complete picture. And then Brett, I'll let you talk a little bit more about the opioid subgroup analysis that we did new for this index.
3: Right, and the interesting part there is that as a version of all overdoses, we are seeing in some communities a slight trend downward. And it's not statistically significant. But at this time last year, every metric was still increasing. Um, so we're at least seeing a leveling, if not perhaps maybe the first little hint that things are going to trend downward. Um, and we're not seeing the increase. So what does that actually mean? It's kind of analogous to our aspirin story. Um, now, the communities, particularly those communities that are the most significantly impacted, have quite a bit of naloxone available to bystanders, friends, rescue, etc. And obviously, more so than ever, BLS first response is utilizing this, which would back to the same issue with the aspirin administration. So the question is, is it really getting better, which we hope, hope that's the case? But we have to be realistic and understand that maybe what we're seeing is people that called 911 a year ago are performing buddy rescue and not calling 911, or they've already administered and, it, and it's not getting entered into the chart because the fire department gave it, the police department gave it, or the buddy gave it. And it, for the same reason, aspirin may not end up there, naloxone doesn't end up there. And so it, it makes it a very complicated epidemic to track uh, because, not that we should not be giving Narcan to to revive folks, I'm not trying to say that, but as as a kind of side effect of all this Narcan being in the community, it becomes really difficult to know are we actually turning the corner or not, at least in the short term. I think once we have two or three years worth of data, we'll be able to be more precise about it. But for right now, it's kind of like, well, it's not going up anymore, which is probably a good thing but we don't know exactly why that has happened. So that, that, to me, that's part of the fun of the index is it generates these conversations to say, hey, we're seeing something, but I can't tell you exactly why.
1: One final question. What message would you like to give out to the providers that are documenting uh, these metrics?
3: Yeah, so I, I think the most difficult thing is not to double document because nobody wants to do that. We're not trying to increase work for folks. Um, I think my hope is that as we continue to put these indices out, that people can see what they put in actually is read, matters, and makes a difference. It's not simply checking a box for a governmental requirement. It, there, there are true insights that can come from that. And over time, my hope is that folks focus their narratives but they don't feel like they have to write the full narrative and then go over here and document differently. Document everything that fits in the flow chart and then color the story with your narrative. But you don't have to double document everything. And I think sometimes this becomes a burden and people see it as it's more work. Once you get facile with it, it actually is less work. Um, You just have to think about how you're going to do it.
1: Remley, you want to add anything to that? Sure. I'd like to echo what
2: Brent said in that you know, documentation really does matter. So what we're doing in the field does play a role in what we do with that data down the line. And I think that something that's important to recognize is that quality improvement is really the job of the whole organization, not just the QI officer. So that starts with good documentation in discrete fields. And then for those who are doing QI, my message is let the data guide you on where to start. Don't try to boil the ocean, as Brent and I always say. But, you know, find a measure that is not controversial, that happens with enough frequency, and start there.
1: Well, I appreciate your time, both you and and Brent. I have to end this podcast because before we start this podcast, I just came off a call, and I've got to write an ESOPCR. (laughs) So thank you for joining me.
3: Thanks for having us. It's been great.
0: Thank you.